the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Rebuild America or make America great again. Certainly all valid observations and sentiments, but perhaps a bit naive to think that we can simply turn back the hands of time. Perhaps we should better reimagine America. Apply many of the successful business techniques that built and industrialized our nation that can direct us to a 21st century American renaissance, politically, economically, socially. Joining me today in studio is the founder of reimagineamerica.org, Joyce Cordy. And Joyce, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. We hear a lot about rethinking, rebuilding, redoing. You're suggesting, though, perhaps in some ways a bit of a different tract, and that is to reimagine our nation. I think you have to. Uh, I don't think um, we, we sometimes talk about a living constitution. We're a living, breathing nation. We're, who would have thought 50 years ago that we could carry a computer in our hands, that we would be ubiquitously connected? That's a different world. And Washington, Washington doesn't understand that world. Sacramento can barely turn it on. So what we need to do is to reimagine America, starting with reimagining a smaller, more efficient, effective 21st century government, a government that is uh, more practical, more pragmatic, that is less bureaucratic. Um, and that's what Reimagine America is about. I rip ideas from the headlines that, and then tear them apart, analyze them, put them back together in a way that can empower Americans to restore sensible citizen-centric government by drowning out the special interests. My aim is always to be provocative, but pragmatic, possible, practical, post-partisan, and absolutely not incendiary. When you walk away from either reading or listening to uh, a podcast on Reimagine America, I want you to be able to shake your head yay or nay. You can take that blog that I've written and send it with your own thoughts directly to your representative. You can get engaged in a community in which we have you know, commentary. Uh, this is our country. This is our government, government of the people, by the people, and for the people, and we've got to rip it back from the politicians who are professionals, and from the bureaucracy. Where, in your opinion, Joyce, did you think uh, we started to go off the rails? Because for the longest time, as you quote Lincoln there, we did understand that our government was trickle-up. It was the people up to the leadership in the White House, the State House, 
City Hall. There was a sense that at the end of the day, our political leaders still feared the ballot box and the power of the voter. I get a growing sense, and I think the current economic climate demonstrates that this is a sense that's shared by many Americans, that uh, neither Sacramento nor Washington, D.C. are are any longer afraid of the people. And so I have to wonder, where did the transition, where where was the, the, the beginning point of this, in, in your viewpoint, that began to take us off the rails and head from of, by, and for the people, ground up to the top political and, and governance to a nation now that, that is getting to look more and more like England and the whole reason why we escaped and said, uh-uh, we don't want kings anymore. Well, we could spend the rest of the day talking about that. But I think the place that we began to lose, we as citizens began to lose uh, control was in the beginning of the 20th century when Woodrow Wilson was frustrated by the way the mechanics of government as the nation began to grow into um, an first an economic exporting power um, and and under Wilson for the first time exerted major influence um, over Europe from a military and, and diplomatic point of view. Uh, and Mr. Wilson in his Professor Wilson we should say in his in his infinite wisdom said, you know, those business people, they're so much more efficient. Maybe we could bring in some expertise to help guide the government. And thus was born the bureaucracy. And today, it is those unelected, anonymous, unaccountable bureaucrats who run the country. You and know, yet you think of private business... Even corporate America, there's accountability. You have to answer to the board of directors, the stockholders, to your customers. If people don't like your product or the way you do your business, they will vote with their feet. Uh, you might see Wells Fargo feeling a bit of that. It's amazing. Soon. I was just going to say to you, I haven't noticed that the shareholders are demanding the head yet of, of the CEO of Wells Fargo. Although it's not a bad idea. But at least there's a sense of accountability. And yet in, in the, the form of bureaucracy that we have here today, there is that disconnect from the way that well, business works. And that's one of the things, you know, if, if you, you ask the question, how did it happen? Well, World War II happened, and in World War II, this bureaucracy, which was a small mushroom, became a portobello mushroom. Mm-hmm. And it grew, and it grew, and but the U.S. economy was growing. People were coming back from war. They were going to college. The economy was growing. People were getting – their lives were were going along swimmingly, and so they didn't quite notice, okay? And in that same period of time, post-World War II, we began to change the types of people that we elected to represent us, from our neighbors to professional politicians. So today, it's, that politician pays his mortgage by telling you as a voter what you want to hear, And the consequence of that in what has now emerged in the 21st century as a multilingual, multicultural country, no longer the homogenous nation that we were in 1945, what has happened is that increasingly people have felt uh, disassociated from that government, either because they come from places where government is empowered or because we feel like we're not heard. So, you know, if, if, you, if you're puzzled by the current 
uh, set of, of political choices that we are faced with in November, this is a result of an increasingly disillusioned uh, and disengaged population, which further empowers that bureaucracy. And if you've noticed in the last eight years, we've largely been governed, uh, actually in the last couple of decades, it's been, we've been increasingly governed by executive order and Supreme Court decisions. Mm-hmm. And less and less by Congress. And it was Congress, closest to the people, the representatives, who our founding fathers saw, uh, saw as the linchpin of this Republican Democrat, democracy. It's not a rep- it is a representative democracy, not a direct democracy. And that's, you know, in fact, our founding fathers, every one of them, cautioned against political factionism and political parties. They had seen enough of that in England. Okay? So we are, are I, I, our acquiescence to the concept that two political parties are going to choose who's going to be the most powerful single human being on earth should scare us all. And the irony is what we ran from in the 16 and 1700s to come here and build a new nation, a new government, a new way of thinking. We've actually down through the last 40, 50 years, slowly recobbled and rebuilt, haven't we? Yes, indeed. (laughs) We have. But it's not too late. And the sense of frustration demonstrated by the voters today, as you suggest, uh, Joyce, um, the current political candidates for both major parties, um, perhaps more of a reflection on that sense of frustration of business as usual, and as you say, this growth, the swelling of government, it's almost like a cancer that grows quietly, silently, the tumor inside that you can't see, yet it's there all the time, and it's slowly, literally sucking the life out of the patient. And I have to wonder if that analogy fits government today, and if so, is this patient, meaning America, American exceptionalism, our way of very way of life, is it potentially at risk if we continue to head down this direction? Absolutely. Completely. In four years, if we don't drastically change the course of government, we will have an economy in which our debt and our gross domestic product are equal. At that point, think of yourself as being a banker anywhere in the world and ask me and tell me that you would lend us money. We are within four to six years of not being able to maintain the existing entitlement system. Our, our military, forget rebuilding it, maintaining it. We've simply got to get honest with ourselves, with each other, with our neighbors, and say we are the most resourceful, capable, innovative people on earth. So we've got to take back our government. We've got to be willing to pay our fair share. We've got to stop asking government to do things it cannot do. And we've got to stop pandering to the most aggrieved voices among us and do what is what our founding fathers always did, that which is best for the the most common man. That is, we need to build consensus. We have politicians whose uh, very livelihood is dependent on just the opposite. 
Let's take a time out. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. Joe Cordy is with us today in studio from Reimagine America. More information, by the way, on the web at reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. A brief time out. Back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Joyce Cordy is with us today in studio, founder of reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. And Joyce, just before the break, you were commenting about some of the economic turmoil that this country is in. Americans, I think, for the most part, learned a very valuable lesson 2007, 2008, when the economy imploded. We suddenly realized that this sense of overborrowing, overspending was hurting our own economic pocketbooks. We saw foreclosures all across the country. In fact, uh, the percentage of Americans that now find the American dream of the, the picket fence and the home in their name with no mortgage to pay uh, further and further out of reach. And yet, ironically, as Americans realized we have to be careful about living beyond our means, borrowing beyond our means, the federal government apparently out of that exercise, took away just the opposite lesson, and that is borrow, and when you're done borrowing, borrow some more, and then borrow even more, and when you can't borrow anymore, well, let's lower the interest rates to absolutely nothing so that we don't put ourselves into bankruptcy paying back the money that we've borrowed. And the irony is we now find ourselves with the largest federal deficit in history that's almost doubled in just the last eight years And there is no sense of discipline in sight, quite frankly, from either political party to stop and say, wait a minute, at some point, at some time, we are going to have to look at paying back all of this money. Well, there's a certain kind of irony in in uh, in this, and that is that that unaccountable, unelected, anonymous bureaucracy and their political bedfellows are all planning on these rich retirements based on. Um, their years of service and their and their government pensions that are going to disappear right along with your savings and your social security if we don't correct the problem. Now, I agree with you, Craig, that we've doubled the national debt in the last four years, but in the last eight years. But I'm not going to blame that entirely on Barack Obama. Um, in fact, I'm going to say it, Barack Obama at least had the smarts in 2009 to say, "Ooh, I think we need to attack the deficit." At the point that Bush left the White House, the deficit was about 35% of GDP. Now, you can blame him or not blame him. That's not the argument I want to have. Um, For the um, liar loan society we were living in that led us to the bank, um, uh, to the recession of 2009, the fact of the matter is that um, the Simpson-Bowles Commission was put together by Obama with the specific mission to figure out how to balance the budget and get the debt tsunami that everybody knew was coming under control. He made one fatal mistake. Uh, he uh, said that the um, the report had to be agreed to in his executive order by three-quarters of the uh, participating members from both parties and from outside government. Uh, for it to be forced onto Congress. There has been one vote on um, on the report, which was really pretty mo- measured, moderate, and, and attainable. And that went down in the House before the 2010 election about 
300 to 38. Don't quote me exactly on those numbers. I do remember there were 38 um, votes for it. Um, and, and so we can blame our politicians, but the day of reckoning is upon us. In 2022, uh, Social Security will, have to, will, will be bankrupt. Um, there are bunches of reasons for that, and you can blame some of those on the bureaucracy. But we are at a pivotal moment, which makes the choice we face on November 8th both extraordinarily important and, sadly, the worst possible set of choices we could have. And, and that's pivotal at a variety of levels, is it not, Joyce? And I ask that question because I think about, and you suggested this earlier, we have over the last mm, perhaps uh, two decades seen a greater degree of governance of our nation coming out of the pen of the president through executive orders or out of the Supreme Court than we really have out of the body charged with the responsibility of creating laws, and that's Congress. And so then this election coming up in November um, is pivotal, too, because the role that the Supreme Court has played in the shaping of law, not in the deciding whether it's constitutional or not, but rather in the shaping of law, um, and, and and therefore the appointees to that court, and we know that Scalia is one, but there are, I think, perhaps up to three others. There are four others four that others. are over 80. So the next president has within his or her power the ability to shape not only American policy but American destiny for generations to come based on what those appointments may look like. Oh, you are so right. But I don't have confidence personally that either um, of the two leading candidates are going to look for people who are, um, like Scalia, interpreters of the Constitution and law rather than lawmakers. And, and Craig, you make the most important point about how pivotal this election is. Although my concern goes even further than the Supreme Court, my concern goes to the very heart of the matter, which is in a nation that potentially reaches bankruptcy, what happens to democracy? Mm. You know, there's a, a relationship between economics and freedom. And, and ironically, and, in, in history, there's never been an example that we can draw from to say, well, when that happens, when that bankruptcy takes place, this is what's left of democracy. So we would, we, we're kind of in the Petri dish for that, aren't we? Oh, no, I don't think so. There are some examples. Oh? How did Hitler come to power? Hmm. Have you looked at Venezuela lately? Yeah, good point there, too. At one time, was one of the richest nations in South America. Look at the natural resources they have. Mm -hmm. And their middle class is eaten once a day. Let's talk about what you're doing with Reimagine America, and what you're hoping to accomplish, particularly heading into this November election. Well, um, like I said, I want to be provocative, because I want you to go vote. I don't care who you vote for. There are four candidates, slates of candidates on the ballot, not two. Um, I don't care who you vote for. I do care that you vote. I mean, one of the things, what, what Reimagine America does, we don't really talk politics in the way that we're talking politics right now. I grab issues from the headlines. Debt being one, 
the need for an infrastructure bank being another, guns, um, NAFTA, um, just the Veterans Administration. We were talking off the air earlier, immigration and illegal immigration. Yes, and and what the, the consequences of that are. In fact, what does the 14th Amendment really say about uh, so-called um, birthright citizenship? And, and what what should we be doing in terms of um, understanding uh, the consequences of a laissez-faire immigration policy? But what, immig- what, we, what I talk about are the issues, all right? I try to – I'm an analyst. By, by, by profession, um, I'm a uh, business analyst. I'm a, uh, an MBA. Um, and, and so what I do is I try to take the issue apart – and put it back together again simply, and then give you some ideas, some, some maybe we could fix it this way, maybe we could fix it that way, uh, some pragmatic and possible solutions. And what I hope to do is in five minutes, ten minutes that it takes to write it, to read a blog or listen to a podcast, I want to see, I want you to be intrigued. I want you to become sometimes angry, sometimes curious. Go find out more for yourself. But I want you to vote. I want you to communicate with your elected representatives. And we try to make that easy for you at Reimagine. And we want to build a community of people who who believe in the promise of America. Um, so that's kind of what where we where we come from. Um, we have an email list. Uh, if you subscribe, I promise you won't be spammed uh, because I hate spam. Um and I fight it hard in my own world. And and you'll get once a month, we're going to tell you what we did last month, what we're going to do this month. I'll give you a teaser. I'm going to write a piece on Colin Kaepernick and what he's trying to do in terms of uh, what he sees as an unjust society. Um, I And I think those are, those are the elements. If we look at 62% of Americans have said in recent polls that they would like to have other choices in this presidential election. Well, that's a passive position. Ladies and gentlemen, how did we get here? We got here because 28.5% of us bothered to go to the polls in the primary with more than 20 candidates vying for the Republican and Democratic nominations. 28% of us 14.5% of the Democrats and 14% of the Republicans have bothered to go to the polls. That means 9% of us nominated Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and now, and Gary Johnson and Jill Stein, and now we're sorry. So come November, uh, I'd love it if you'd come to reimagineamerica.org, all one word, and Download our voter scorecard. It's yours. It's completely private. I'm never going to have any way to see how you fill it out. But it's an opportunity for you to look at all four candidates, give you all the resources to get really smart about their positions. You can look at them side by side, objectively, and make a decision by the numbers. And bottom line, if you want to save America, you've got to vote. And at the end of the day, we all get the kind of government that we deserve. Information available again on the web at reimagineamerica.org. That's reimagineamerica.org. Our thanks to Joyce Cordy for being with us today in studio. Thank you so much, Joyce.
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. We're visiting today with Cheryl Hainer. Uh, Cheryl is the wife of Steve Hainer, who um, many of you no doubt know was for many, many years the president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. He also served as a president emeritus of Columbia Theological Seminary. And, and for a while, you guys were in ministry up there at the University Presbyterian Church. In fact, I just happened to notice that uh, Mark Laberton, uh, formerly of First Presbyterian Church here in Berkeley, uh, writes the foreword to your book. And I, I think if, if, my, if I don't have my my schedule or my dates mixed up here, um, Cheryl. You guys might have been in service uh, up there at about the time that uh, um, that uh, Earl was up in, in ministry there. Well, we actually left a little ahead of Earl, but um, yes, we were there when Bruce Larson was there in um, at University Press in Seattle. So those were wonderful years. We left in 1988 to go to. Uh, in a varsity. Ah, got it. And Earl Palmer, by the way, for listeners of the Bay Area that uh, remember Dr. Palmer's ministry here on KFAX, associated with uh, First Presbyterian Church for many years. We're discussing uh, the experience that um, Cheryl and her family went through. Um, Steve had been diagnosed with aggressive pancreatic cancer in uh, April of last year and uh, passed away in January of this year. Their journey detailed inside the pages of a book that's based on uh, the journaling that they did online, essentially as a way of keeping friends and family apprised of um, Steve's challenges and progress, and of course, many aspects that, that the both of you share um, on the website and inside the book are, are, are intimate in terms of sharing how you're thinking and feeling. Talk to us about sort of the process of all of this. Do you, do you kind of tend to go through waves when you're in this experience, um, Cheryl, in the sense that one minute you're, you're very hopeful that God is going to come in with an answer and a solution and a miracle will be wrought, and the next minute the sense of maybe despair and wondering whether or not God's even listening? Do you go through those experiences? Oh, I think so. I think everybody does. Um, it's really an up-and-down journey. But I think one of the things that, that um, both Steve and I felt so strongly about and really encouraged each other with was that this was a one-day-at-a-time journey. Mm. And so it's, um, we found it was really fruitless to look ahead, even a week or two, um, just to wonder what was ahead. And so really focused during that time that, on the fact that God had given us today, and so what did it mean to live faithfully for that day and to look for the glimpses of God's grace, which were, you know, if you look for them, they're there. Um, so I, I, I think that that was helpful. And the, the goodness of going through a journey like this is that when one of us was up, the other one was, or one of us was down, the other one was usually up. We could encourage each other that way. Do you find, too, that these experiences, I mean, again, we all understand that we, we come into this earth with an expiration date. While we don't know what that date is, we understand that it is soon coming. Should should Christ tarry, we're all going to eventually go through this experience. And yet, I think maybe there's additional gravitas added to the, the, impo- the really important things in life. When you have that sense that that eventual day may be sooner than later, uh, d- does it change the way you, you look at life events? If, for example, I, I note that during the midst of all of this, Steve celebrated his 66th birthday. Right. You had your fifth grandchild um, in the midst of this experience. Um, Christmas time, there must have been a sense uh, in December of last year that it would be likely your, your last Christmas together. Do those things suddenly take on greater sense of, of breadth and depth and significance as you go through something like this? I think so. I think so. They, um, the times of celebration become um, much more poignant and uh, 
and I mean, and sometimes that's a problem. We can we can put too much power. I know that Steve was so anxious. He writes about how disappointed he was at first on Christmas Eve because it felt like he was the only one trying to make it really special, which um, obviously wasn't exactly true, but that was what he felt. And um, so you, sometimes it's that sense of we've got to make this right, we've got to do it right, um, when instead we began to learn, no, you just got to live through it and be grateful for what's there. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, don't don't overthink it. And yet, mm-hmm. give it that sense of of, um, of importance that it deserves, because you know that, that you that you forgot to put out the trash becomes a lot less significant uh, right. up against the other important things in life. When you really begin to to weigh um, the the shortness of our experience here on Earth, right? And, and Steve used to um, use a phrase often called "living in light of eternity," and we he would talk to our kids, you know, when something was happening to them um, as they were growing up, it was, so what, what is its significant in light, significance in light of eternity? And often when, when you look at an individual um, event or an experience and then look at it against the, um, the eons of eternity, it becomes very small. So part of it is just keeping that perspective in mind that, um, that we really are, we are, um, we are terminal. And yet we are invited into eternal life and into this eternity with God. And so that also helps um, with the... to not give things too much weight, I think. It's interesting, though, because it, it, it gives a sense of, of gravitas and importance to, to two aspects of this dialogue. One is to um, give greater value to those things which have value mm-hmm. while here on Earth in life, and then understand that even in light of that, that against the backdrop of all of eternity, this is just a this is just a speck in time. I, I've always been fascinated by the notion, and you'll see this in any cemetery that you walk into. You'll look at a tombstone, you'll see a date of birth, a date of death, and be it ten years apart or a hundred years apart, everything in between is summarized by a single straight line, just a dash. And I thought how interesting that is that our that our, our life here on earth is is summed up in a dash and I think that gives you also a sense that that when it's compared to eternity uh, this is really just a fleeting moment in time. Yeah, I think that's true. On on the other hand, there's also that sense that every moment is a precious gift from God. And so whether we were in the um the infusion room with where Steve was receiving chemotherapy and having conversation with a nurse who would take care of him or with another patient. I, you know, I think I think the invitation is to live more fully into each moment because um, it's true that that life is is you know it's a, a breath, it's just a, a passing moment compared with all of eternity. But at the same time, God gives us this privilege of living right in the moment, and I, and I think that's where some of this joy comes too. There's there's definitely joy in the hope we we have in Jesus Christ and in that the um, kind of confidence we can have that 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 nothing will ever separate us from God's love. And I think too but that sense of of living life intentionally. Um, book author that we're all familiar with might say purposefully. 
um, and, exactly. and, and, and doing things to build memories as well. My, my father passed away, in fact, uh, three days before Steve died. Oh, that, I'm so sorry. My, my, my dad passed away in uh, January, January the 28th. He, he went mm-hmm. in the fashion that I think, Sharon, we would all like to sign up for. He went to sleep Tuesday night and simply never woke up Wednesday morning. Oh, that's a lovely gift. And it, and it is a tremendous gift. In the moment, you're, you're afraid and terrified and you're angry and upset and confused and all of that. And when you then take a step back and say, wow, God, what a beautiful mm-hmm. gift. And then I think about the fact that as he was getting older, he, he passed away at 85 and a half. In fact, his, speaking of another coincidence, um, Steve's birthday and my father's birthday are exactly two days apart. Wow. My dad's wow. the 25th of June. And uh-huh. we found as he was getting older and in the last four or five years beginning to slow down, uh, you begin to recognize and you start to say, well, you know, when, you're, when you've when you lived a, a good 80 years, um, every day becomes precious. Let's do what we can to live intentionally. Let's build memories. Mm-hmm. And all uh-huh. of a sudden you find that um, the smaller things are not significant at all. And those things that maybe heretofore you just kind of didn't, didn't give a second thought to now become important in that memory-building process. Um, but I think the, the biggest joy in all of this is is, is to realize that through it all, um, even in that sense of, of the finality of death and so much of the, of the um, ceremony, I think, that, that goes into what we do with a final service, the final resting place, um, we, we, we tend to treat death with a sense of finality. And yet, from a Christian perspective, and I even said this from the pulpit at my father's memorial service, from a Christian perspective, um, this is not goodbye. This is just so long for now. That's the promise right. that we have. That's the hope that we have as believers that I think, um, Cheryl, is what carries us through these experiences. No, oh, I think that's absolutely right. I think that's absolutely right. Yes, I, um, uh, I'm, I've lost my, my train of thought. Um, one of the, one of the things that, that I, Steve said often, and what I um, wrote the, the afternoon that Steve died, as I wrote the Caring Bridge blog for that day, was that Steve's life was swallowed up by life. That death is that tiny door, but it's really a question of moving from life with a small L to life with a capital L. Um, that that life in Christ. So it it is um, it, it, there is a sense of finality in that we that um, things are no longer the same. But you're right; it's um, there's that hope of seeing him again and um, seeing your father and those that we love. And I like that perspective that you lead to this because we know that that death was swallowed up when Jesus overcame the grave, when he rose again on that third day. And so you're right. We think about from from the 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 very um, finite sense that life gets swallowed up by death. Mm-hmm. And yet the reality is for believers, and I want everyone listening right now to really capture this, whether you're kind of on the fence or you happen to dial by this program and you're not particularly predisposed to Christianity, maybe you're kind of looking into some things, maybe you have very little interest at all and just thought, what are these people talking about? Let me listen for a moment. There is there is the uniqueness singularly within the Christian experience from a biblical perspective where we as Christians truly 
don't see death singularly as a finality or death is something that swallows up life, but rather that, that life, as you point out, Cheryl, small L, gets swallowed up by life, big L. Right, right. And therein lies the hope that we have, not only in terms of seeing our loved ones once again, but understanding that Steve's life, my father's life, didn't just simply end. It changed. It was transformed in a twinkling of an eye and moving from the, the finiteness of what we experience of life here on earth to the infinite, the internal side of glory. In being in the very presence of God, Paul reminds us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And, and just imagine what that experience will be like eventually for all of us who find life in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's exactly right. I, I, um, I'm, I'm so grateful for that. You know, many people were praying, we were praying for healing for Steve on this earth, and with absolute confidence that God could do that. Um, but what really happened was as he, as he was swallowed up in life, Steve experienced healing in a way that is way beyond what he would have experienced on earth. So there's also that kind of hope that... There's no more pain, and there's no more illness, and no more tears, and that's um, that's really comforting for those of us who are left behind. We we encourage Steve at the very end just to to um, to let go and um, and rest in Jesus' arms because he was in a place where he was in pain and his body was decaying, and so life is life with a capital L is whole and wonderful, a place of shalom. We're going to take a brief time out and come back to more of our conversation visiting today with Cheryl Hainer. The book is called Joy in the Journey, Finding Abundance in the Shadow of Death. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. Charlie Dombeck here from Key City Capital. As a practicing CPA for nearly 30 years, I have found that 80% of your ability to grow your wealth is dependent upon two factors, taxes and investment performance. At Key City Capital, we improve investment performance by diversifying capital into off-market investment opportunities in passive rental real estate and alternatives like asset-backed lending. We recover dollars that clients unnecessarily pay in the form of income taxes, creating a lifetime annuity of savings. We are responsible of passive, affordable, single, and multifamily residential rental investments, which are located in Sunbelt landlord-friendly states. These investments are the top choices in a rising interest rate and inflationary environment. They represent a store of value protecting your capital from market volatility. Learn how we at Key City Capital can help you ultimately grow your wealth rapidly. Connect with me at keycitycapital.com or give me a call at 817-912-1569. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Visiting today with Cheryl Hainer. Her book is a series of notes from journaling that both she and her husband Steve put together um, beginning not long after Steve Hainer's diagnosis with pancreatic cancer in April of last year. And of course, you you probably recognize the name Steve Hainer. He's been a guest on this show uh, during the time when he was the president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And uh, Steve was diagnosed, as we mentioned, along about um, Easter time last year with a very aggressive form of pancreatic cancer and went home to be with the Lord at the end of January of this year. And um, Steve, along the way, along with Cheryl, um, journaled and shared in an online journal, really as a means of 
keeping friends and family abreast of what was going on in in Steve's journey, and it's ultimately produced a book that shares some incredible insights, um, most importantly into uh, the joy, the hope that we have as Christians, that even through the darkness of this, even through the, the, the shadow of death, uh, that we can find abundance and ultimately find joy, as the title of the new book, Joy in the Journey, suggests. Um, one of the things that I found overwhelmingly encouraging uh, when my dad passed away uh, in the end of January of this year um, was those that came alongside and were a part of what you refer to in the book as the ministry of being with. And it's amazing because sometimes people will say, well, I, I don't know what to say, or they're searching for the right words to say when at the end of the day, those of us that are grieving a loss or going through the journey of watching a loved one pass, um, sometimes all we need is just to experience that ministry of being with. Well, I think that's so true. We we certainly experienced that, especially the last week of Steve's life, um, as our children had come from distances to be with us and uh, friends gathered downstairs um, through most of those last five days. It was amazing what a gift that was, um, which shouldn't be terribly surprising because Jesus came um, as Emmanuel, God with us. God, God is all about being with and calls us into that. But it is, it's a huge gift. It was a wonderful gift. You know, there's something also that's kind of inexplicable about all of this, at least in terms of being able to, to formulate words, uh, Cheryl. In, in, in my case, uh, and no doubt in yours as well, there's, there's a tremendous sense of loss, um, uh, particularly in my case, losing a parent. Um, I, I woke up a day or two after my dad had died and thought, well, I'm, I'm halfway to being an orphan. I don't know why, where that thought mm-hmm. came from, but I yeah. had that, that feeling that, gee, this, this connectiveness that I had, part of my identity, feel as if, as if it passed uh, on the 28th of January. And yet in that process and through that, that grieving and, and the moments of getting wrapped up in the process of, okay, you have to go make the funeral arrangements and, and you're, you're incredibly busy for the first week. And then after the final uh, arrangements have been made, the memorial service is now behind you. You kind of collapse, uh, you know, like an emotional rag. And yet what I find amazing through both those early days and in through today as I've passed through his birthday in June and Father's Day a, a week later and things of that sort, that God in his overwhelming grace makes his comforting presence felt, sometimes in little tiny ways, Sometimes in huge ways, but without failure all the time, he makes his comforting, reassuring presence felt. And, you know, again, that harkens back to just that that notion that what, what a joy that we have as believers, that in the midst of adversity, in the midst of grieving and in loss, we know that the Comforter, our Holy Spirit, is there for us to guide us and bring us through. No, that's exactly right. I, I think often of that passage in Second Corinthians 1 where uh, Paul talks about the God of all comfort who comforts us in our adversity so that we in turn can comfort others. And we've, we've certainly experienced that comfort from God, sometimes through another person or through scripture or through a song. Um, but it's been really interesting as the time has gone by uh, since Steve's death how the many conversations that 
that I am in or our kids are in where the very thing that was of comfort to us becomes something with which we can comfort another person. Mm. It's really quite amazing. In that process, uh, share, share with our listeners, uh, Cheryl, maybe an example or two. Um, I, I, either since Steve passed or in the midst of that, of that painful journey in dealing with the chemotherapy and the after side effects of all of that. My mother's been a cancer patient for about 14 years now, and, mm. and boy, you know, dealing with everything from loss of appetite to everything she eats tastes like metal to, uh, you know, losing your hair, your dignity, all of that. Um, was there one or two experiences that you can share with our listeners where God just showed up in a, in a really amazing way? Well, I, I think there are a variety of places. One of them was um, when, you know, taking care of, of Steve and working with him with his meds, and um, it's, we're, you just don't know what you're doing. And... Um, I remember one night just just not knowing if if his meds were working, if I should give him something else. Um, and it was at that moment that um, I was able to talk to the cancer uh, talk line at, at Emory University where Steve was being felt. And, you know, it was as if God was on the other end giving me reassurance through this nurse and this, we, she kind of finessed the medication that Steve had. And it was such a clear picture to me that, oh, God is present. I'm so, so, so grateful for that. Um, since since um, Steve's death, we've experienced that a lot. In fact, even today, I had coffee with a young woman this morning whose mother is is um, suffering through chemotherapy in a very serious and aggressive form of cancer. And um, I was just reminded that as God showed up for for us, God was showing up for this young woman and with her mother. Um, our son has a colleague whose mother has been diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer, and and he was able to bring encouragement to this buddy of his today um, because of the ways that God showed up in our experience with Steve. So there, there. Um, sometimes you look for it. I think it's this whole thing of grace that it's an adventure. Um, and we used to think we talked about this. Where will grace show up today? And and that was often um, it was sometimes in a card that we would receive or a phone call or um, a song that we would hear. Um, some piece of good news it was um, it's very evident that uh, that phrase we we hear from time to time playing it forward comes mm-hmm. to mind as, as we experience for ourselves in the midst of our loss or our pain the grace of god three-star general michael j flynn head of the pentagon intelligence agency knew all the government's dirty secrets he was one of the most respected generals in the military flynn knew what the intel world had been up to he understood its funding he ordered the first audit of the use of contractors this set off alarm bells the explosive new documentary flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost and covers the facts behind this scandal flynn told the truth he was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.